Since it was my first job, actually, yeah, I was a student. I rolled into Exact, and it started growing and growing and growing, and it didn't stop. But every three years, I thought it's time that I should do something different. It's, uh, it's I'm always doing the same, so I need to do something different. Starting a company is easy. Selling your company, that is a different story. In the big exit show by Peak, we lift the curtain of secrecy of selling ambitious scale-ups by talking to successful founders who have been in this roller coaster. My name is Remy Gieling. And I'm Johan van Mil. And in this episode, we talk to a true serial entrepreneur, Arco van Nieuwland. Arco and five other friends started software company Exact in 1984 and build it into a global powerhouse. In 1999, Exact had an IPO by the original founders and was taken private again in 2014 by Apex and is now owned by KKR. Exact has offices in 20 countries, more than 1,850 employees and over half a million companies in the Benelux alone use Exact software as their administrative backbone. Arco left the company in 2005 to start another venture called Yuki. That company was sold to the Norwegian conglomerate Visma in 2019. And now he's a full-time entrepreneur with his fund CNBB. We are so excited to have him on the show. Arco, welcome. My pleasure. Arco, is this your first podcast ever to be on? Ah, yes, yes, yes. I have to admit, my first podcast ever. So it's a uh, primer. Yeah, are you excited? Very excited. <laughs> hey, Arco, what's the heroic story of Exact? You know, what's the story, what you tell everybody to your friends when you talk about Exact, why you started it? Well, uh, while you were just uh, summarizing a little bit about Exact, I was just wondering, does it still count as a unicorn? Since uh, meanwhile, it's uh, now sold from uh, Apex to KKR and uh, valuations uh, very north of uh, 1 billion. So it would be great if I still can take the benefit of that as uh, delivering a unicorn to the market. You can. Uh, <laughs> okay, uh, thanks. Yeah, it, it's it's a classic story as uh, uh, six students uh, rented a garage uh, and with uh, each uh, 6,000 guilders at that time uh, bought our PCs and started uh, programming. And there was PCs with dual floppy drives and uh, that was about it. And we started programming and uh, our law Launching customer or distributor was Arendt and well, that it uh, went uh, all the way. To the roof. To the roof, yeah. <laughs> and what's the real story on Exact? Because this is indeed the uh, the fancy story, right? Which is a big dream, a founder bringing an, uh, a company to life and bringing it even to an IPO. What's the real story from your pos- position? Well, it's pretty close to the public story, but the real story is, is that uh, blood, sweat and tears, working uh, 80 hours a week, uh, uh, no money, and just uh, going through many failures and then uh, bring it uh, step by step, uh, bring it uh, to uh, to fruition. Uh, and uh, yeah, everything that could go wrong uh, did go wrong, uh, but we had our successes, we had our failures, uh, we were robbed, we were cheated, uh, we did failed acquisitions. Uh, we thought uh, Belgium was an easy market to enter. Well, we found out that Waterloo is not for nothing. Waterloo is in Belgium. Uh, we we attracted uh, venture capital uh, at that time, uh, General Atlantic Partners, uh, which was new at that time since the term startup is only recently uh, invented and now uh, everybody talks about startups and scale-ups but at that time we didn't uh, know how to spell venture capital Uh, we run into these guys that were interested in our at that time already from the very beginning 
profit-making company. Well, that was easy since we did not take any money out of it. And uh, they helped us entering uh, into the U.S. market. So we had our adventures in the U.S. market. Uh, perhaps uh, a small story that I can advise everyone, go to uh, go to exhibitions. We were, I think, the, one of the first Dutch companies that went every year to the Comdex. Uh, Comdex doesn't exist anymore, but that's a, a, a very big uh, international exhibition. And uh, we spent there uh, one week behind the uh, casino tables and uh, talked about the strategy and uh, aimed very high. There was the moonshot travel. And there we picked our RDs on, on how to innovate. Uh, we, we were the first to start with updating software via billboards. Now, none of the listeners knows what a billboard is, but it, it's pretty close to an online update and you can download your software. Uh, we were the first to robotize uh, the, the production of floppy disks. Of course, nothing was online. No. So I have to make a side note. At the time we started was without internet, without mobile phones. Everything was on-premise, right? Everything was on-premise. It was not even a network. Uh, at that time, it was mini and mainframes. I hardly dare to tell it since you must uh, think uh, I'm already uh, sitting in my wheelchair here. But it's <laughs> been a long time. But in, in that period, roboticizing uh, uh, copying of uh, uh, floppy disk was was quite spectacular. Yeah, yeah. What a what a day. Yeah, yeah. it was uh, was an amazing ride. Yeah. Well, in this podcast, we want to get to know your insights on scaling companies, but also about selling companies, and we'll we'll look into your latest venture, Yuki, later on. But we really wanted to like to start with the exact story. So really glad you told us right now. Um, maybe we can zoom in on a few moments in the exact story. What was it like starting a company in 1984? How did you know how to run a company? Because there was no real internet, was there? Were, were there books? How did you learn how to run a company? I think that's the good news. We didn't. <laughs> so uh, it was just uh, go with the flow. We, we felt that we had a great idea and a lot of energy and passion and a lot of time and no money. And we, we spent it all. Did, did you rent an office? Uh, we well, we rented a garage, and but our first office was at a student room of one of the founders. So we sat there around his table until his uh, fellow uh, uh, house members uh, kicked us out, and then we <laughs> we rented this literally this uh, garage uh, in in Delft. So we didn't know anything. We just just went for it, and we felt, and that has been always our main drive, uh, that we could do better. Mm -hmm. uh, what uh, the current products in the market were were shitty, unfriendly uh, products, so we could deliver a better product. And we felt that customer uh, is central, and that sounds very logical. Uh, I think it's it's the drive of many uh, entrepreneurs. But at that time, uh, 90% of all the uh, ERP systems uh, were all uh, tailor-made systems. Yeah. They, they spent uh, hundreds of uh, thousands of guilders on uh, on IT systems and a standard product out of the box did not exist. And we felt that we could deliver that. And so we did. And you started, I think you, a few of you started from Grote Beer, right? Or have been with Grote Beer before. Yeah, like you myself. Yeah, yeah, like yourself yeah. indeed. And then started. What was the problem at that time that you were trying to solve? Because now it's all about seeing a problem and finding a solution to it. What was at that time? Finding the yeah, it's, it, that's a little bit by the book that you need to solve a problem. And uh, to be honest, I uh, apply that to uh, many of our ventures we currently investing are in. But to be honest, we were not really 
solving a problem, but chasing an opportunity. At that time, uh, we uh, there was Arendt still existing big in office supplies. Uh, they felt that they needed a solution for architects, an IT solution. So Arendt wanted to step into office automation and they did not have any knowledge and Grote Beer was not willing to support them. So we stepped into that opportunity and uh, went all the way. So you could argue the problem was that there were, were architects that were seeking for project administration. But to be honest, it was just Arendt uh, wanting to offer serve, to serve that market. And we were available at that time and could make some money out of that. And then uh, it, it went through the roof since once we got started, we... And, and started thinking about it and said, hey, but if we can develop a architect uh, uh, solution, a solution for project administration, time and billing for architects, we might as well also deliver accounting, uh, invoicing and, and the rest. And then the first thing we did was delivering a brochure. And I think perhaps that's one of our little st- secrets that we first de- uh, developed all the brochures, then went to an exhibition uh, hired the booth, showed all our brochures, and <laughs> at night I was programming uh, at home, uh, delivering what we needed to show next morning. And uh, that's uh, during the exhibition we uh, made progress in the mock-ups and the screens that we were uh, presenting. That's called an MVP right now, right? <laughs> 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 exactly. And and Ireland was the time well uh, well ahead because for for an office furniture supplier Absolutely. to step into the software market in. And what was the time when you decided to fully focus on accounting and administrative, where where I think the main focus of Exact was? Yeah, once once we uh, delivered all the brochures, then it became clear that we could not uh, stick to the brochures only and had also had to deliver some software with it. And and people were just demanding for uh, accounting software. Since there there are more people uh, that need accounting software than architects, So that was an easy... Uh, so literally easy you put bet. on the stands the different brochures yes. of accounting, exactly. architect, etc. And you saw how many people were taking the brochures uh, yeah, of Yeah, more or less, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Who, who were your competitors back then? Were the competitors? Oh yeah, absolutely. Everybody said it's impossible since the market was fully divided. There was uh, Midas, Grote Beer, Windgasse and Unit 4. Uh, well, the only one still left is Unit 4. And uh, the, the, they controlled the entire market. But all of them were user unfriendly so that means uh yeah you cannot imagine it today but if you need to look up an uh, an, a, num- a customer number an account number you needed to go to uh, through a pile of paper find the name find the corresponding number and then you have to type it in and we were the first to come with a lookup uh, browser where you could search in a in a small window and, and those were the ms-dos days right ms-dos days yeah full yeah. character base You were with multiple co-founders. Did you envision the future together? Were you dreaming about what it might become? Were you dreaming that it, one day the name of your company would be on a Formula One car? No. No, that, that's. Uh, I think that's perhaps different from the, the startups now. The startups now start with their unicorn ambition and vision and then start thinking, how can we achieve that? And for us, it was just we wanted to be the best in the market and that's what drove us and that led to the fact that we were really uh, successful and eventually were uh, the absolute uh, market leader 
So uh, it was not a big plan. And only later I wrote business plans and I never wrote a plan that really uh, came out as I predicted it. So I, I will not dare to write another business plan anymore. So it was just a go uh, for passion, drive and really being yeah, passionate about delivering the best product in the market and, and becoming the best company in the market. That's what we did. So you say we didn't have a clear vision, right? No. We didn't have a product? No, well, we had a vision. We, we, we had a vision on that we felt that the product should be easy to use by uh, SME, by MKB. Uh, so the, 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 the lower mid-market should be able to use this product in a super user-friendly way and should always have proper support. So one phone call away, we would be there uh, to uh, to help other customers. And that, that's the, the one of the first customers, uh, Rietveld, there was an, uh, an incasso bureau and a collect, uh, collection agency. We sat there during New Year's Eve drinking uh, his bottle of whiskey and making sure that every part of the software was doing what it was supposed to do. So, And that, that was an example of how far we went to really make uh, software uh, work and customers happy. Hey, that was all tailor-made software, right, in those days? Mainly tailor-made, Yeah, I but think? we were very, very strict in uh, only delivering standard software. Yeah, it was already from the start. Then. From the very start, yeah. Okay. When, when did you make that switch to SaaS? Because now it's not on-premise anymore. It's only running on the cloud. When, when, when did you make that exact the switch to the SaaS? Uh, I think uh, if if hindsight uh, too late, mm-hmm. uh, SaaS, there, there was one step in between, which I will uh, uh, mention briefly. There was a step from DOS to Windows. Mm-hmm. That was disastrous. Uh, there were uh, many uh, technology errors. And I think the, the, the biggest lesson we, we took uh, with us there is that at that time we changed everything. Data structure, technology, database. Interface. Uh, interface, everything was uh, changed and that was just too much. Mm. So later on, then, and that, that what kept us a little bit from making the move to SaaS. Mm-hmm. Later on, we were way more careful and more or less uh, uh, copied the the Windows version to a SaaS environment. Although it was a fresh new development, uh, we we stayed very close to the original functionality and data structures. first of all, to make it manageable for ourselves. And at the same time, the customers also were not waiting for a fundamental change of how to work with the software. Mm -hmm. So we were relatively late. I think the first one to benefit from SaaS in the Netherlands was at that time Twinfield. Mm So they uh, cleared the pathway uh, for us. And then uh, we followed shortly uh, behind them. And because then, there also was a time that many companies didn't want to adopt SaaS, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. But it was for us was not the reason. We felt that that was the way to go. But we're uh, and that that's of course if you have a lot of customers, uh, and we already had at that time. Uh, there's and uh, that's a yeah, bit of and, the use, and using your product daily, right? Daily, because, absolutely. Yeah, that's, yeah. And that's a bit of a downsize of running such a large company. It you're more concerned to lose what you have than not to win what you don't have. And I think that's what triggered me, uh, which we will discuss later on, to to start all over again. Yeah. So it, the innovation it, starts it, outside your company, right? Yeah, yeah. And it, it it felt so 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 limiting if you uh, have to be concerned about losing what you have. Yeah. And that was typically with so many customers. At what time did you begin to think about the possibility of an IPO? Um, well, that was more or less 
triggered by the fact that we had we had a VC on board. So we, we were engaged with uh, GAP, General Atlantic Partners, and we felt that that would help us uh, getting access to the US market, uh, finding acquisition targets, taking a little bit of money off the table, not too much, but it, it was enough to take away the tension amongst the shareholders. Mm. So everybody was at that time independent. And that, that sounds a little bit like a small thing, but if you are with six founders at that time, uh, five, uh, then they, you need to manage your tensions. Um, and so that was an important step. But the very moment we took GP on, uh, GAP on board, it became clear that they needed an exit. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially at that time, an IPO, being a public company, then you were a real credible company. Mm-hmm. And until that point, we we were just a bunch of students running a company. Yeah. How, how big was the company back then? And what, and what was your role? Especially as G, uh, when GAE stepped in. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know that. Ex- I think when we went public, we were uh, around 100 million. Mm-hmm. Not that big, but... Uh, I th- I, Very good for a couple of students. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we, we were around uh, 100 million, uh, but I don't know the exact numbers, especially not when uh, uh, GP uh, came on board, but we were substantial. We, we were profitable. And we're still talking guilders back then, I yeah, guess, right? Yeah, in 1999, I think the euro was replaced. Uh, Gilder replaced for the euro. Yeah. And, uh, and your role? My role was at that time, I think when we went public, I was responsible for the latest in- innovation that was eSynergy. And that's still a brilliant product. And I'm still disappointed that it uh, got so little attention from exact once I've left. Uh, but that was... The what, ne- what, did, what, what was it? Well, uh, eSynergy was a, a, a solution to combine all the processes wall-to-wall in a company. And that means you, you have six entities, uh, customers, products, employees, documents, transactions, and projects. And they all relate to each other. And it's in all one database. And that was at that time... And now we're talking data lakes and repositories. And uh, and at that time, there was a real big innovation. And that meant that all employees were working on the same basis. So a support ticket was a workflow in the company and was contributing to the information around the product. Uh, if you uh, took a customer angle, you could see all the support tickets, you could see all the transactions, invoices, bugs, everything related to customer product projects. Sort of a data warehouse software almost maybe. Yes, to some extent, but then with a lot of pointed functionality. So it was not just a a Power BI type of repository. It was really implemented with workflows, uh, data structures, uh, screens, reports, consolidation, and that kind of... uh, Never considered a spin-out. I have considered that, but nobody dared to spin it out. Mm. Yeah. Since on the one hand it w- was fast growing, very profitable, so they 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 didn't want to lose it, but at the same time they lacked, and that's that's my hindsight uh, view on why it, it 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 was put aside more or less. It's still there, and it's still I think a very uh, successful component of what Exact currently is uh, bringing to the market. But it it was not enough understood. Within the six founders that you had, right? Because a lot of were from the technical university. What was exactly in the beginning your role and how did it evolve over time? Uh, I started as a programmer, developer. Yep. And that was uh, 
space because that was my background. Mm -hmm. uh, I studied the computer science. And gradually I moved away from real hardcore development to more product marketing. And, and now I'm uh, very much closer to marketing, branding, mm -hmm. and of course, innovation and uh, product uh, strategy and vision. Yeah. What was the process like for you? Because um, you started out from university, you, you learned along the way how to run a company with, with friends, hired people, yeah. but it got so big. How does that affect you personally? Well, it doesn't. It, it's, if you just work hard and play hard, and that, that combination was very important, uh, it's, it's not that it's... There's a direct impact on you personally. You didn't feel any pressure because you're you have the responsibility at a very young age no, for so just, many people. No, it was a lot of fun. We had so much fun in everything we did, and that's I think that's that's very hard. And later on at at Yuki, I can explain that again. But it's so hard to get to the point of of magic and chemistry, and that makes a difference. And look at those successful companies. There's it's always something like a sect. Mm -hmm. it, there, there's always this magic bounding factor. And uh, look at, uh, read the, the book of Google. It's very similar to what I've seen with Exact. But also the people from Microsoft or from Apple, they are a member of a certain tribe, of a certain clan. And they, then they feel invincible. Mm -hmm. And that's what we did. And that, that was, of course, the hindsight the easy part since uh, no family i was uh, whatever in my early uh, 20s so no family no obligations uh, no social life mm -hmm. you could argue since we were working 80 hours a week made a lot of fun went to uh, the us made uh, tremendous uh, trips uh, everywhere and that made it all work and, and how did you build that culture yeah, that is, uh, we build that culture through uh, hiring and recruiting from the student environment. Mm -hmm. So we were in Delft and Eduard was from uh, Tilburg. So that, that so young people, young people, all uh, academic, uh, all from the same student environment, uh, feeling comfortable at uh, drinking a lot of beer yeah. uh, until late in the evening, uh, yeah. understanding certain informal hierarchies. And that that's, that is what we took with us, and we found people that liked that. So I, I hear some parallels with, uh, I had a fireside chat recently with uh, Chris Hall of Binder. I hear yeah. a parallel there, right? Also how he builds his culture, young people. Yeah, uh, very he, recognizable. I yeah. think uh, that he achieved, uh, fr uh, perhaps from a slightly different angle, but very similar things. Uh, young people, student environment, a lot of party, uh, a lot of drinks, working hard, playing hard. And it sounds so simple, but you need to pick or find the, the, the same like-minded people that like that and feel passionate about what they're doing. But it's, it's very... Uh, much like uh, what you see at Binder, and for us it was special since it it, 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 it with Binder it, it came also very natural since uh, Chris has this uh, inspirational spirit uh, with him. Yeah. Uh, but it, it for now, uh, if you look at startups and scale-ups, that that is a recognizable important asset in the company at that time. The, the startup did not exist. So this was quite unique what we uh, achieved there. Last question, I think, on this. How do you keep the boundaries to indeed work hard, play hard? I mean, a lot of people, I think we all know from our student times, but also now can drink a lot of, in the evenings, but are not as sharp in the morning. How do you keep that boundary if you are running a company? 
Well, uh, I think you don't. You don't keep that boundary uh, and, uh, and things get out of hand and then you have to correct and adopt. Uh, I think that is impossible to manage. Once you start setting boundaries, it's the end of uh, the culture that's related to that spirit. Uh, I think what is more important, how do you keep that spirit in the company? Mm -hmm. And that's what we saw over time once we were growing and uh, people started calling me sir, then, uh, <laughs> then, then, then you realize that something has changed in the company. And then you see that the lights are switched off uh, after seven o'clock. And the young people get older, right? They start having kids. They also have Absolutely. a new uh, way of Absolutely. living, right? With a yeah. family also means less parties, right? Yeah. I think it's pretty hard to maintain that over time, right? But that, yeah, that's impossible. So yeah. you should not try to keep it alive forever it. and no. you should uh, evolve also uh, cultural uh, wise now after the ipo how did the company change did the company change yeah the company changed uh, a lot very much and uh, i think for us it has been amazing going public and having the recognition of a public company and experiencing what it means to be public uh, to have a supervisory board have uh, external shareholders roadshows investor relations that is all amazing and it's nice to uh, have been a part of that but i would dare to state it's the end of the entrepreneurial spirit uh, it means that uh, you you start looking at peer groups, uh, you start reading analyst reports, and uh, to put it really uh, blunt, you could argue that from that moment on, you're more managing your peer group numbers and analyst reports than that you are really managing your own uh, company. And that that's, uh, although again, although I like it a lot, that period, and I've learned a lot from that, that is not where I uh, got excited uh, from. It's, it's a, a small example. If you're a public company and you, uh, you made a wrong hire, the wrong CFO, and you fire him and you made a, a second wrong hire, you think twice before firing him, uh, him again. Mm -hmm. Well, if you are not a public company, you think, shit, I made the wrong hire again. Excuse my French. Uh, you're just firing him uh, or her again. Yeah. So yes, it changed a lot. So... There are a lot of companies now, you, we, we call them unicorns, uh, who are growing very fast. And people are asking, like uh, Robert Fiss, uh, with message, when are you going to do an IPO? Or recently with GitLab, who did a great IPO as well. Would you, would you recommend it to entrepreneurs to IPO their company in this relatively early phase? And especially because it's, it's always presented as the best path, right? Uh, it's a, perhaps a little bit of a boring answer. It, it depends. Uh, I, I, would, uh, I, I would just explain what it will mean. And I had a discussion with Chris Sahal, uh, what it well, going public. I said, yeah, it, it's great. You have to do it. It's a once-in-a-life experience. Uh, so, yes, uh, go public. At the same time, I also explained to him, it's not that much fun anymore. And uh, it, it will change the company and his role and uh, how you will have to explain to others what you're doing and why you're doing things. So, uh, from, from an entrepreneurial point of view, yes, for the experience, no, for the end result. Uh, from an organizational perspective... 
And then there's this other consideration, uh, valuation and uh, taking some chips off the table. Yeah. And, and your shareholders, your VCs in this case. And your shareholders, especially uh, in, in the binder case and also in the exact case, you have VCs that are seeking for uh, a return. highest valuation, a highest return. But to be honest, today, different from back then, uh, there's such a mature uh, private equity venture capital market that there are many alternatives in finding an exit. And it could either be strategic or another VC or a new conglomerate. So there are alternatives. So uh, one more question about about this, because we didn't talk about this in previous podcasts. When do you talk with your VCs about the possibility of an IPO? First of all, you need size. It doesn't ma- it doesn't make sense to uh, if you're uh, below 100 million in revenue. I would not go public since the cost of being a public company are high. Uh, you you need to pay your subscription fee uh, for lawyers. Yeah, accountants. lawyers, uh, but but your your regulations and your accountant, it's it's all two times higher. Uh, I think at that time uh, the annual cost for for being a public company at exact at that time were around two million, I guess. So it costs a lot of money to be a public company, and it limits your uh, your your abilities to make decisions uh, on the spot. Isn't it a marketing cost as well, actually? If you boil it down, uh, but the, I include that all. A marketing okay. cost is not that much. Uh, I think you should spend money on marketing uh, in, in most of the cases. And uh, you, being a public company is already a marketing uh, marketing factor on its own. Yeah, but can you put the, the two million as a marketing expense? Well, if somewhere. I would then uh, have to choose how to spend my two million, I wouldn't spend <laughs> it on, <laughs> okay, on the stock exchange. <laughs> no, it is annually. Eh? It is not a one-time uh, uh, yeah, going yeah. public on itself costs a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. I think 10 million roughly, right? To bring yeah, your company... Yeah, uh, you public. spend a lot of money on the bankers yeah. and it, yeah. it's it's expensive. So you need... So you're uh, getting back to your question, you need a minimum size to make it worth uh, the, the trouble and the cost. And uh, then it also depends on why you want to go public. It could be that you want to be recognized as now you are really uh, worth the investment. It could also be that you are seeking additional capital. Mm-hmm. And what you see today, often uh, valuations on public markets are higher than on uh, private markets. So if you are seeking money, yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, the public markets are way to go. For exact, for instance, we did not need any money. So we have always been very cash rich, very profitable. So for us, going public was an exit for the VC and for few of the employees. Yeah. Since what you see today with a lot of startups and scale-ups with all their equity stock option plans, that's nice, but people want to exit at some point in time. So the, the pressure sometimes is building uh, to exit uh, and, and to have some flexibility in your cap table. Hey, what did you learn on, on the competition level in that way, going public? Because I can imagine right in those days of exact also competition was rising. When you are public, you should also be more aware of what you share. You have to share certain things with the market, like your financials, but also indeed the successes that you have, but also the failures. What were your learnings on being taking a company public related to competition and to growth in that respect? No, I would argue that that was uh, uh, a benefit. Since, uh, for instance, if you uh, need to tender for the larger companies, uh, if you're not a public company, you're not taking serious uh, enough. Uh, if you want to tender for governmental uh, solutions, you need to be uh, more 
visible. So I think uh, it helped us being more competitive. And we always had numbers where we uh, did not have to be ashamed of. And it would rather scare off the competition than it could damage us. And But that's a personal thing. I've never been uh, so secret about numbers or uh, what we were doing or our latest innovation since if it's it's not coming from the heart or from from the core no, of the company the competition copy cannot copy it no. and of course there are examples uh, in china where it's the other way around but it's you you need to have the uh, the spirits behind it did it change for you personally because all of a sudden everyone knows the company where you are the owner is it that people treat you differently yeah, that, afterwards? That, 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 is, that, that grows gradually on you. Uh, first of all, uh, what I uh, mentioned earlier on, that they start calling you uh, sir, sure. mister, <laughs> and vous uh, voyere. Uh, so that, that is different. That That's a stage. But indeed, uh, being more public and, of course, uh, also uh, seeing the financial side did make a difference. And, of course, the, the, then suddenly... Uh, the quote also finds out uh, and they want to take you on your rankings. That was very unpleasant since uh, people always were aware that I was well-to-do, but it was very abstract. And then when it becomes a clear number... <laughs> very it, very it, visible, right? It, yeah. it becomes a very funny number and then people... Uh, start acting differently. Yeah, yeah. and, and for, for for the international listeners, we have a publication in the Netherlands who publishes the wealthiest 500 yeah, for, people like in the, the Netherlands. Forbes, uh, yeah, 500. like the Forbes yeah. 500 yeah. Yeah. each year, and it isn't always that fun to be mentioned in it. I guess. Yeah, some people like it. Uh, I don't like it for 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 security reasons, but also for privacy reasons. I like to be and and, and interact with people as I am, and not because of a listing somewhere. And just people look at you differently if there's a number uh, behind your name uh, that reflects your your wealth. And Is that something to consider for other entrepreneurs? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that that's why I'm a, a big fighter against uh, the UBO uh, registry mm. in the Netherlands and mm. in Europe. Uh, I think that that's a big burden for family companies, for successful entrepreneurs, since it will limit your possibilities in, in just uh, acting socially and uh, keep your family uh, yeah, outside of the picture. Is, yeah. So for sure. At a certain yeah. moment, you left exact, right? I, I think in my head, I've left exact already 10 times. So I think every three years, I thought, well, it might be, since it was my first job, actually, yeah, I was a student, I rolled into exact and it started growing and growing and growing and it didn't stop. But every three years, I thought, uh, it's time that I should do something different. It's, uh, it's I'm do, always doing the same. Um, so I need to do something different. Uh, but then again, uh, then we went to, to another country or then we went public or... There were always uh, things that kept me going. But then at some point in time, after a couple of years uh, being a public company and uh, with with a supervisory board that, that were really heavily interfering, it didn't feel like being an entrepreneur anymore. And it, it felt like uh, playing a political game. So uh, then I decided to really leave. And uh, that's what I did. And um, This was around 2005? It was two, 2005, yeah. And... When was the first time you started thinking about, hmm, maybe it would be fun to start another company with a new vision from scratch? Well, that moment never happened. 
So first of all, I thought, oh my God, what am I going to do? I've uh, I've never worked elsewhere. Perhaps nobody wants to have me. And has this been a lucky shot? And I, I'm not capable of doing anything. So that was my first concern. Uh, I've seen other people leaving with their money and they started uh, flying, racing. Uh, and it, it felt a little bit like, uh-oh, uh, I'm, I'm going on a sliding scale and uh, that, that will be my end. So I was very concerned to to become irrelevant. That, that was my uh, problem. I did take a small vacation uh, with the family, went sailing and uh, did some other things. So I can advise everyone who does that, take more time off and uh, since the rest will come automatically, And then uh, Lucas, uh, Lucas Brentjens, who was at that time the CEO of Exact, who left more or less together with me, started a small company, Familyware, software for family and friends, birthday calendar, uh, address book, uh, stuff like that. And then I joined them and I thought, well... I don't see a real easy market for that, but the platform is great and we could use this for serving entrepreneurs. And that's where it all started. And that became eventually in Yuki. And that became uh, Yuki. So then we thought, okay, that we we buy the the platform, the the, the technology. It was slightly inspired by Synergy. So there was all in one repository, documents, transactions, everything in one place. And then we just started from scratch as a company with a new name. Uh, branding, positioning. And our uh, idea was, okay, bookkeeping has been old-fashioned since, what is it, 1814, uh, this, uh, or even longer ago, this monk that started with uh, dual accounting. And we thought now it's time for innovation. And then we the vision was you file a document and the next moment your all your accounts are fully up-to-date. What did the people back at Exact think of this? Because you were somewhat starting a competitor for a different market yeah, maybe but is, it's also uh, yeah. somewhat similar yeah i think i think they were not that concerned and uh, that's also what i explained them you should not be concerned so they believe me i guess <laughs> uh, but we've never made a secret out of it so i've always invited all the people from exact come and look what we're doing you should do the same thing and and uh, don't forget in 2005 until 2015 i was still one of if not the largest shareholder in exact. No, indeed. So you were building your own... uh, So that was more or less my uh, justification of that I would not compete since uh, all my eggs were still in that exact uh, basket. So there was not a real reason to to hurt exact uh, or so. And I used it as an example and to to inspire exact, go this way. And um, well, that didn't... That did not really happen only after five years. Because Exact was was still focusing on the big companies, right? No, no, no. It was just all, all uh, SME, all, all mid-market. Uh, so so what was different then with, uh, with Yuki? At that time, we uh, did the full service. So our idea was that we were the middleman. We were more or less like a business processing outsourcing company. So we were in the middle between the entrepreneur and the accounting firm. Our assumption was entrepreneurs don't want to do accounting. And we take I care of it. I think it's a fair assumption. <laughs> the, the, 
that it was a fair assumption. Uh, also there, uh, we, we, we talked about business plans. We did real investigations, business plans, and our market was the independent contractors, ZZP market, 700,000, and we had a great spreadsheet, and we could address uh, 10% of the market uh, times 1,000 euro a year, and we would be successful within two years. That did not happen. Apparently, uh, and we did market research, we did interviews, and they all said, yes, we would like to have it, and but it just didn't happen. So we, uh, and I think that that's, has been an important point at uh, the success of Yuki, that we pivoted. And I think we did that two or three times. Uh, similar to also exact, and uh, that's perhaps a general message to entrepreneurs. It's uh, it's not the strongest that survive, but uh, those who adapt easiest to circumstances, uh, the Darwin approach. And I think also with uh, Yuki, we, we changed our strategy. Since we were in the middle, we were a business process outsourcing uh, uh, company, but accountants said, oh yeah, great, wow, fantastic, but not for now. And they also did not feel comfortable that we took care of the posting, so the processing of the documents. Uh, since we said we, we are not accountants, we only do the processing. Uh, we, we are more or less the outsized bookkeeper for the entrepreneur, but the accountant is taking care of the VAT declarations and annual accounts. That did not work. The accountant wanted to own everything or the entrepreneur wanted to do it himself. So there was no uh, place for us. So then we made an important move. We raised the prices. We moved away from the independent contractors and we provided our software, which was developed for accountants to run a back office. And we made that available to accountants. And as of then, it took off. Yeah. Hey, and, and especially when Yuki, sorry, was rolling out and was starting, and you're all at the same time indeed, sorry, shareholder of Exact. Yeah. How did that feel for you personally? Was it was it not in the way of, of starting an, indeed a competitor of Exact? No, that only happened later. So especially in the very beginning, we were not competing. No, so since indeed. we were offering a different solution, uh, there were entrepreneurs that liked to do their own bookkeeping. So they bought their Exact uh, license and those who wanted to outsource it came to us. So it was just different, uh, taking a taxi or a train yeah. uh, by a means of transportation. It's the same, different price, different uh, level of comfort. So it didn't feel like competition. No, okay. Only later on, then we, of course, we started competing, uh, but that was only, I think, after five years. And already in that period, we were well we were not taken seriously by exact since we were way too small and i think they were right at that time they did about 200 million uh, plus in revenue and we did uh, perhaps 7 million in revenue so only if they would grow 3% they would grow the same number as our re- total yeah. revenue so but but eventually at the end you sold it to Visma, right? What, yes, we what, did. One yeah. of the uh, I think one of the competitors of Exact in the market. Yes. So what was the the situation back then, right? I can imagine, right? It's also a ch- yeah, it's only a year ago. It's not that uh, no, long it's, time uh, yeah. ago. It's <laughs> quite recent uh, actually. Um, well, the the difference uh, with uh, between Exact and uh, Yuki is that we we were more like investors in the company, although Mm. we run the company on a day-by-day basis, very passionate, but we had a a more, let's say, professional approach. And so we made a consideration every year, where are we in the market? Uh, What's the competition? How are we valued? 
different from the period with exact. It was just go, 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 the best, the best, the best, the best. Has that something to do with being really on hand with the early days of exact, where you were programming yourself and maybe making the flyers yourself? Yeah, Did you course, have more yeah. of this, uh, this no, emotional connection? In your life. Uh, I did, at that time, I was uh, 25, I didn't know anything. And, and uh, meanwhile, I was 50 and it was, uh, the, the, it was a more professional approach. And I, I, I thought I had a lot of experience, but... You could also argue that the money we had and experience we had was also in our way. Since, of course, the market has changed, products have changed, and you cannot compensate with money. Uh, so it was relative expensive growth, uh, I would argue. But still, uh, at the end of the day, we were able to put our experience at work. That That's for sure. But... Um, we had a, a, a periodic, like every year, every two years, we had a review. Okay, where are we? Where do we want to be? Where should we be in five years from now? What's the competition like? So we had this discussion, but we felt so comfortable. We were still growing 30%. We finally had proper traction. We were doing really well in Belgium, had a proper uh, setup in, uh, in Spain. So everything was perfect. And then came um, Visma. And how did that happen? Uh, by phone. <laughs> <laughs> I just called you. Hey, Arco. <laughs> well, more or less, uh, we, of course, we were, were quite uh, and are quite connected in the market. So uh, easy, accessible. And we were we knew what was happening in the market. We we did two acquisitions ourselves uh, as Yuki. And it was, the, meanwhile, Dizzy Data and uh, Commandi. So we were well connected. We were also seeking for opportunities. Uh, we, we knew the players. Uh, meanwhile, Vision Planner was sold to Visma. Lucas was at that time a member of the advisory board of Vision Planner. So the contacts were really close. He knew uh, what uh, Visma was capable of. And then shortly after that, uh, we received a phone call from Visma. Can we have a coffee? By that time, you know that it's not about uh, the quality of Dutch coffee. Uh, you know, it's about <laughs> other uh, topics. So the Nordic coffee is better, right? <laughs> and they are really quite aggressive, as we can say it in the most positive way in the market, because they they bought like 27 companies last yeah, year. Absolutely. 11 being in yeah. the Netherlands. You you were the biggest, by the way. Yeah. yeah, we knew that, of course. So before engaging with them, we went through our numbers and our expectations and said, okay, do we like to sell? Well. First of all, the answer was no. And I think that was, the, the, of course, the easiest starting point for us since we felt comfortable. We did not need any money since we already had our first home run. So that made, made it also easy. Mm-hmm. And then if you would sell the company, you will again have more money with negative interest and all the complications that comes with that. Yeah, sorry, guys, who uh, is still uh, waiting for his first exit. But uh, we felt comfortable, also took into account what the ambitions were of the other shareholders. They might want to take some chips off the table. But we felt that we made some estimates where we could be in five years from now, then derived just net present value of that. And so, well, if it would bring this money to the table... It might be a good one. Uh, and we looked at, is Visma the, the party whom we would like to work with? Mm-hmm. And, and we like Visma a lot as a, as a these are tech guys, as a product company. And that, that's what we were as well, since we should not underestimate. Uh, Lucas and myself have always stayed 
product guys. Yeah. Working, talking, discussing, seeking new features, opportunities every day again. And still today, we're... we're Not very, programming anymore, I hope. Not programming <laughs> anymore. Although <laughs> rec- I did uh, I did some programming the other day on in R uh, to recognize and parse credit card statements. So it was oh, cool. still than myself. Still okay. with cool. uh, and yeah, boots, boots as in, as the, a, in the clay, as we say. 940... Comma separated files, but occasionally, but that was this very rare. Hey, in what is FISMA different than Exact? Because you know the f- two companies very good, and of course Exact from the start, but also Visma now when they've uh, taken over Yuki. What, what makes them different? Because they both have a very different strategy. If I look uh, yeah, from the I outside, think strategy, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, they are very di- different. Although I do think that strategies are. Uh, growing towards each other, but uh, basically Exact is a single product, single brand company. That is not literally true, since meanwhile they have acquired quite some companies, but the idea is it's Exact, there's one product, uh, and uh, adjacent, branding, uh, yeah. adjacent products, and it's Exact, the brand, and that's uh, there's one num- number to call, and that's Exact. Very well executed, by the way. Yeah, uh, very, very well executed, very profitable, solid company, still a lot of values that we long time ago put in place are still carried on so that that's nice to see visma on the other hand is although and that's the interesting part about visma it's it's a product company but it has more the characteristics of a private equity company so they acquire companies in a very efficient way a very professional way and more or less they leave the company as is they say okay guys we bought you because you're a great company So please carry on what you're doing. By the way, we have here a center of excellence on AI. Uh, Here we have a center of excellence on other topics. Uh, You can benefit from that. We have some ideas about branding. You can benefit from that or not. No, Uh, you're not obligated to work with their... It is uh, the for for the Dutch market. I think it's slightly different mm-hmm. since they they acquired quite so. so they have account view, they have uh, cash, they have uh, well the the two other brands. It's all accounting, so they yeah. need to do something about that, and that is difficult. So the 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 model they have deployed in other countries is the, requires uh, small adjustments, and that's why you see the name is Visma Yuki. Yeah, and that's fine with me. Uh, and for the listeners, we're currently still recording this in the Yuki offices. Yeah, I'm still so, welcome. So uh, yeah, the, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the warm connection still there. Johan, on the other end, always says that one offer isn't the offer. So did you at one point? Look for a counter offer. Yeah, that's a that's a, a very interesting question. Uh, the answer is no, and there's a reason for that. Uh, we felt, uh, of course, we are experienced in valuing companies, buying and selling companies, so we know what's out there in the market. There, I think there has been a possibility in driving the price higher. At that time, other companies, uh, not to be disclosed, during that same week started calling me and suddenly had a lot of interest in, uh, <laughs> in Yuki. Very bizarre, time. right? That's, uh, that everybody knows uh, <laughs> somehow. It's a uh, small world, uh, yeah. you could argue, for uh, certain people. But uh, so we knew that there was there was an opportunity to play parties against each other. And explicitly, we did discuss it, uh, but we didn't do it. Uh, We felt, we we made two considerations. First of all, it was a very good offer. 
a multiple NIRR, which is in in the in the higher rankings uh, of the market. So that was it was not that they were uh, offering us a bargain. It was a very good price. So we we might have been able to pull out another ten million. I don't know. But then what would it add? Yeah, it would add 10 million. But it was not like that we were seeking the last million. And we felt that uh, Yuki was in in the right hands uh, with Yuki. And the deal structure allowed us to find some additional uh, upside as well. But the starting point was uh, we were not driving it uh, to the last million. And that helped That helped the process uh, since we, I think, from first call to, to money on the bank was perhaps uh, eight or ten weeks. Mm. It was amazing. We had a discussion on the price that was... 40 minutes there was a due diligence process that took perhaps uh, two or three weeks there was and of course uh, this is a, a solid company so there were not that many reasons to go in depth and find trouble in the data room but if you feel that you have overpaid you always find something yeah. and then you have to start nagging on on small topics and there was no discussion there was a smooth process and i think everybody happy but still as, as an investor right you also have the experience as being an investor on uh, board and in different companies that if you want to find the right price for a company, the only way to do that properly is to have multiple bits on the table, right? I think... uh, Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think so. Unless you're pushed by your shareholders and they are seeking for the last million and they want to absolutely sure that they did not discount uh, too much, then there's no other way. But if you're in control of the process and you think longer term and uh, you think about the process, reps and warranties, other upside mechanisms and a proper future for your company, then it's not about the last million. So I... I would advise everybody not to go for the last million. Not to go for And for the last 10, because I think uh, it's also in the public report, right? I think you looked it up, uh, Remy, the exit value of... So Yuki was 125 million? Yeah, something uh, like that. So suppose, and you mentioned rightfully, I think it's not for the last million, but w- would it be worthwhile if it's 25 million more on that respect to do a... A broader search for buyers. I would agree with you that one million is not worthwhile or, given or, the risk. Or maybe in addition to that, you, mm-hmm. you mentioned that there were some other upsides. What are some other aspects that entrepreneurs can look at uh, to make the deal favorable for them? Um, well, the future of the company, will the product be killed or will it be continued? Uh, what will happen to your people? So also for Yuki Counts, of course, uh, there are a few core people that made perhaps the biggest difference. But without the the, the enthusiasm and the spirit of, of many other uh, names in the company, I could not have been successful either. So I think you should respect those people who have worked their butt off uh, for the last years as well. They're proud on the product and on the company. And if that would die just for the sake of a little uh, more money for me, that would not be my uh, choice. It's it's the future of the people, uh, the product, the company, the customers, and uh, reps and warranties. So you can drive the price to the maximum, but then there will come limitations and then there's risk. For us, the big advantage was we did a deal in whatever, eight weeks, 10 weeks, and that, that was it. If uh, we have, would have dragged this with us, trying to find the last whatever millions, there's even the risk of failure. And I know of examples today in the market that it took them a year finding that, that target at one billion, whatever, 
and they end up with a failed process. And that's yeah. something that's sometimes overlooked because I know cases, and you know as well, Johan, that mm. that the deal was almost done. No, a lot. And then the the and other the part of yeah. people is really high, yeah. and the spirit and the downside, and it there's the rumor in the market. Ooh, this is it. They and, didn't uh, uh, go uh, through with uh, it. Toxic, Maybe there's uh, some toxic um, assets. Yeah, but it, I think I fully agree with you, Arco, because indeed it's a different view that a general investor has, right? To make a maximum return on the money, but indeed a good landing of the company. And a soft, yeah. and especially the continuity of the company and the people and the drive and energy which is there. And I fully agree. That makes a true value. Yeah. yeah. We're almost an hour in. Yeah. So we've been talking for a really long time. Yeah. So I think it's almost time for the closing statements mm-hmm. for our listeners. Shall we both ask a final question, Jan? Sure. Yeah. You go first. What is the... I mean, you've, you're a real serial entrepreneur, right? You did it twice and very successful and even more times also with other companies and things yeah. that you've been involved in. What is your biggest, I have two questions. What's your biggest advice if you want to start a company right now? Perhaps we can start with that. Well, you have to have a, a passionate about one topic where you really want to make a difference. If that's not there, then it's not, not going to work. Perhaps that's the easiest as far. If you, some people come to me, I like to start a company. Uh, do you have an idea for me? It, you have to have this, this tremendous urge, like, how is this possible? I have to change this. That it still exists. Why do I have to walk stairs yeah. when it can be automated? I'm going to do it. I think that's if you don't feel that tremendous urge yeah. and then all the other advice is written in many books like there needs to be a market and uh, there are so many things. And perhaps another thing is, and that's closer to me as well, and now also on the investor's side, you can have the greatest product, the, the most amazing market, but it's not going to fly if you don't have the right team and the right people. So either you have to be great yourself Or you have to have a a solid team that really adds value to each other. And I think if I look at myself, I'm I'm absolutely not the greatest entrepreneur in the world, but I have always been lucky uh, to work with people that compensate my flaws. And I think you have to look uh, realistically at yourself and say, hey, but I'm not good at whatever sales or product or service. Find people that that really uh, compensate you and um, make it work. The question I had was, you mentioned the first time when you were uh, considering uh, making an exit on the board of Exact that you were afraid of feeling irrelevant. After that, how, yeah. how did you overcome that when you were going to sell Yuki? Did you have that feeling at all? Or no, was that, it, uh, no, no, no did not it, anymore. By that time, I had uh, gone through very many phases and are in a complete different phase in a different life. So no, there was not a concern at all anymore especially in the later stage of Yuki, although I I was highly involved, I was also involved, as you know, uh, in other investments. So uh, there was a more gradual conversion into a next phase uh, in life. What's your next ambition? Uh, Next ambition is to more or less do this one more time. But then uh, really as an investor, uh, as I explained, uh, we're now doing a, a buy and build process with uh, Spotler. That's this marketing automation uh, solution. And I think we can do a, a, a similar thing, 
but in a different way. So it's not like an entrepreneur really boots on the ground, programming everything myself, but by uh, a different strategy, buy and build, but still watching culture, uh, bringing in place a proper management team, good culture, uh, enough innovation, uh, solid profitability. And that can also be done uh, through a buy and build. And that's uh, the process we're in right now. So that's my next ambition. And then there are so many other ambitions, but that's for later. Well, thank you so much, Arco, for sharing your story today. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Big Exit Show. We hope you enjoyed today's program. And if you did, please subscribe to our show at Spotify or your favorite podcast platform. And if you have any feedback, please send a message to podcast at peak.capital. My name is Remy Gieling. And I'm Johan van Mil. Thanks again for listening. And we hope you join us at the next episode. 